0: Hey guys, welcome back to the DTD Podcast. This week, I'm super excited. In the studio, Jack Nevels, who served 25 years active military service, two years as an airborne ranger in the 1st Ranger Battalion, and then 23 years in Special Forces. He served a variety of assignments in 7th and 3rd Special Forces Group and at the JFK Special Warfare Center. Mr. Nevels retired in early 2013 as a sergeant major. During his career, he worked in numerous countries in South and Central America, conducting counter-narcotics and foreign internal defense missions. He was training foreign Tier 1 hostage rescue units, military and police, in close-quarter combat, sniper operations, integrated assaults, and military freefall operations. Mr. Neville's also trained allied police units in personal security details for high-level government officials. Tonight, in the studio sar major retired jack nevels what's going on
1: hey dj pleasure to be here it's great to talk to you thanks for having me on
0: yeah i'm so glad you're here uh greg got us together and he said man i got this guy that you gotta meet he's done it all and when i started going through your bios and videos about you you're not kidding you have done a lot of stuff and been a lot of places But I want to start out the interview with a quote that I heard you say, and I I want to get your thoughts on it because I think it's going to kind of carry us through this entire interview. I heard you say, your best weapon is your mind. You can't outrun bullets. You have to outthink the guy shooting them. Now, I don't think that just holds for gunfights. I think that holds for life in general. So how did you come up with that?
1: Well, yeah, after retirement, I started doing a lot of training um, for different agencies and just b- based upon my experience, both as a, you know, as a student coming into the military and then getting to be an instructor, like out at our CT school, and then going overseas and have people shoot at you for a long time and then coming back. And I, I had the great privilege to get to run our, our counterterrorism school and our sniper school. You know, af- after these experiences, I figured out that it didn't matter how fast you could shoot and all of this, what really matters is how fast you could think, you know, because gunfighting and gun shooting are two very different disciplines. Um and so the things that you can do to make your mind more efficient in your thinking, you know, you have to be in good shape. You got to get oxygen to your brain. You have to have um some strategies for fear management and how you're going to do that and, and think about that. And how do you transfer fear to the other guy's court and make him think not as efficiently and staying in an offensive mindset, things like this. So, you know, part of the things I do when I train people is just try to get them to think, um, you know, your mind is your greatest weapon. And from having battled cancer different, you know, in my life and different things like that, I found that your ability to stay mentally, positive to stay on the offense to have a never quit always win mentality i think really changes the game
0: so when you talk about that some interesting points that you just said there gun fighting and let me see if i get it right gun fighting and gun shooting are two different things is that's that's what i'm understanding that you're saying right
1: absolutely Yeah. I mean, shooting on the range, you know, standing still in the range, shooting targets is different because targets aren't shooting back at you. And, um, so, you know, when I do gun fighting training, I do everything on the move, you know, I always ask guys, I say, well, have you ever shot at moving targets and they're like, well, yeah. And I'm like, well, are they harder to hit than stationary ones? They're like, well, yes. And I go, well, you're the other guy's target. It's true. (laughs) Yeah. So it's like. You know, if you're behind the power curve, you know, if you look at the OODA loop or whatever, you know, those type of things, it's like if that guy's already observed, oriented, decided now he's acting and you're starting at observe, you're behind the power curve. So, you know what I mean? So it's just a different mindset of, um, you know, do you need to have good fundamental skills as a, as a firearm shooter marksmanship skills? Absolutely. You have to be able to do these things before you can progress onto these others. But You know, just because you can shoot a weapon on a range doesn't necessarily mean you're going to prevail in a gunfight because there's there's other skills in there that I think are um, that could be deficient.
0: So let's talk about some of your earlier life getting into the military that's kind of setting this up, because I definitely want to talk about the training as we get towards the end of it, because. I think that's a big part of who you are and what you're about now. I think it's always been part of your career, but now you are super focused on not just training military, but training law enforcement, training civilians, getting people in the right state for mine. So I want to go all the way back to your childhood. Now, I we had talked before the interview, and I'd said that I had learned that you were adopted, and you come from a military family. No matter how you cut it, you cut, you, you come from that cloth and your adoptive father was in the, uh, 82nd airborne, uh, during the fifties, sixties. So you have that mentality, but then after your parents got separated and your mom got remarried and you got a stepdad, he was also an infantry officer. Now what's interesting about it to me is, is the 82nd as elite as they are, you went above and beyond that. And then for your stepfather, you didn't go the officer route, you went the enlisted route. So I want to talk about how all these things kind of made the perfect witch's brew of your career.
1: Well, you know, I think it actually probably starts a little bit before that. I think, you know, knowing that I was adopted, um, for whatever reason, my mom always told me, she goes, well, you're special. Well, um, you know, because you're adopted. I guess because she didn't want me to find out later because I didn't look like my siblings. They were um, blonde-headed, fair-skinned, um, and a very different disposition than me. Um, and so I think one of the drawbacks to knowing that at a young age or as you grow up, it eventually occurs to you that somebody didn't want you, you know, okay. like being adopted, yeah. you know. And um, so you just go there's this underlying feeling of rejection and i think that sometimes when people have that it forces you to seek validation and it forces you to over overachieve or maybe to to act out to look for attention because um maybe you didn't get the attention you needed or something like that so i think you know in the recesses of my mind i think that was always there you know fast forward 30 plus years i had my son Or I didn't actually, my wife did it, works out better that way. Um, but I, but I, but I remember, um, you know, in fact, he was born at Fort Bragg at at the hospital there, and I remember I held him the first time. And I've just it chokes me up thinking about it when I held him the first time, it was just like I was so overwhelmed with this love of, like, oh my gosh, this is like the first person I know I'm blood related to. And it was just such a, I mean, if you're a parent, you know, you know, the first time you hold your child, it's just like, it's so like consuming. And then it occurred to me, you know, that I was just like him. And then somebody went, no, I don't want that. Just, you know, let's get rid of him. You know, so it it was just always one of those things that kind of plagued me in the back of my mind. It was like, you know, what was wrong with me? What was the, you know, what was the issue behind? um, Later in life, I got some clarity with it probably something for a different discussion, but it was just kind of one of those. uh, um, You know, one of those things, I think that kind of formats your brain. So um, I think that that was always in the back of my mind growing up. And then, for whatever reason, you know, my mom, you know, who adopted me, she's my mom. um, She says, I can't ever remember a time you didn't have a gun in your hand as a kid. She goes, that's just who you were. You'd have a diaper, whatever you'd pick up, it had to be a gun. And then you were just out on your own. And then I would sneak out of the house in the middle of the night and just do crazy stuff. I don't even remember, my mom would tell me and you know, I'd get a good whooping for that. And I was just kind of a um, either I, I don't wanna say a stupid kid, maybe some of that, but fearless or just didn't, just didn't have a good grasp of how the world worked. You know, you just, you're a kid, you just go out there and you're just figuring it out. So yeah, there was a lot of stories like that of uh, shenanigans. And then yeah, as I grew up, it was just one of those things I wanted to do. Then I pursued wrestling and as many combat sports as I could. And then um, in high school, I actually got involved in a military science group, an explorer group. Um, which is was an offshoot of of the boy scouts or something like that the guy that ran it was a green beret in vietnam and i didn't know anything about green berets at the time and then when i met him i was like oh i know what i'm gonna do with my life i'm gonna be a green beret because this is awesome you know so then i like you know most kids you pour yourself into those things that you're really interested in And, and so um couldn't wait to get out of high school. And as soon as I, as soon as I turned 17 and I, because I started school early, um, as, uh, as soon as I graduated, I was 17 years old. I went in the army and, um, at the time you couldn't go right into special forces. You had to, um, you had to be in, in three years or be an E4 promotable or something like that before you could go to selection. So I went to Uh, the Ranger Battalion. I met a guy in basic training who's like, dude, you need to go to the Rangers with me. And I was like, okay, you know, what do Rangers do? So, and, you know, again, when you're 17, you don't know what you don't know, but it all worked out for me. And it was fun. And my drill sergeant, actually, he was in Ranger Battalion. And so he was real hard on me and he's like, Neville, you're going to Ranger Battalion, you know, because I was a 11 X-ray, which is like an unassigned infantry so I could have ended up being on a tank or being a mortarman or being whatever, right. but he made sure I was an eleven Bravo and he told me, okay, when you go to airborne school, they're gonna come by asking for volunteers and you're gonna volunteer. Roger that. He's like Forrest Gump. Yes, drill sergeant. Yeah. You know, so <laughs> <laughs> so whatever you tell me to do. So yeah, so that kind of started my uh my my track down that path.
0: Well when you when you talk about uh, basic training and going there, it doesn't really seem like I, I, I talk to guys every once in a while and and they'll say, man, I knew what I wanted to do from, you know, age eight. And it seems like you did know what you wanted to do uh, going in. But then it seems like when you went in, you you just kind of said, just put me in, coach, put me wherever. Uh, going in as 11 x-ray. They didn't. Did you do the x-ray route because you had to do that time? So you took the possibility that, hey, I I could go there. I could go here uh, just to kind of keep your options open. Or what was the reason? Did you just one in? So you just took whatever they gave you?
1: Yeah. You know, my recruiter said, well, if you want to go special forces first, you need to be in the infantry. So you need to have an 11 contract, right? Okay. And he didn't tell me about the Rangers or whatever, you know, maybe he had a quota to fill. And again, I didn't know what I didn't know. So, um, I just went 11 series, you know, but you know, going to, going to the Rangers back then, I think was a great place for a young man to kind of cut their teeth on the world and just get hard because if there's one thing that ranger and does you know um you know in is for knowledge uh kind of thing when you're singing the singing the cadence they're they're not um maybe always the brightest but definitely the hardest and um at least back then i think the rangers are quite a bit different now um ranger battalion what they are now compared to what they were back then are very very different i think they're much more specialized much more um much more better trained than we were um I, i've got to work with some um, regimental recon guys and whatnot over the years and they're it's just different than it, it was back then so anyway it was uh just a different thing but i immediately found out i liked it when i remember when i left airborne school they had us like you know if you were going to be a, a ranger they had you throw all your stuff in your duffel bag and your rucksack and you had to go from the airborne barracks, you know, and then marched down towards Lawson Army Airfield. And back then they used to have these old World War II barracks right at the top of Cardiac Hill there. And that's where R.I.P. was, Ranger Indoctrination Program, which is now R.A.S.P., it's a little bit different. But anyways, that that was where we were. And I remember I showed up there the week before Christmas break and we weren't gonna start R.I.P. till after Christmas break. So we showed up and they said, well, there's no standard for zero week, which you're in. So we're just going to PT you guys. And I remember this great, big native American ranger instructor. He had to been like six foot seven. The guy was a giant of a man. He would take us on runs that would literally last like (laughs) all day. I saw all of Fort Benning on foot. It was, it was crazy. And I mean, we would just, I mean we would do a straight force gump run from sun up to sundown it seemed like. We would just just keep going and going and then um I remember when we returned back from from uh, Christmas leave we were all in the barracks and it was freezing out it was January like I don't know early January um and the post, it was just freezing. It was in the teens, and I remember about four in the morning, they just came and started kicking over trash cans and throwing flashbangs outside, yelling at us and telling us to get outside. And so we're all running. You know, you don't want to get in trouble. And some guys are naked, and some are just in their shorts or, you know, their skivvies or whatever. And they get us in formation, and we're in we're in the what we called red square because one of those old World War II buildings had fallen down before, and so they just bulldo- bulldozed it out. So there was a space between two of them and, um, you know, how Georgia has that red clay down at Benning. So we're all standing on that and they just said, okay, this is when, you know, Rip's starting. And so if you don't want to be here, this is your time to quit because, um, you know, we're going to PT you guys and you know, blah, 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 and torture you and do all kinds of bad stuff. And so I said, if anybody wants to quit, then just go ahead and raise your hand. You can follow the back of the formation. You guys can, go back to the other barracks. We'll send you an airborne unit elsewhere in the army. But for you guys that don't quit, this is gonna get tough. And so myself and my my buddy that I was in basic training with, his brother was in Ranger Battalion. He's the one that told me about the Rangers. We're standing there and we're just, we kind of got our heads down and we're looking back and forth to see if anybody quits. And then one of the Ranger instructor goes, okay, there's one. And then says, so I guess somebody fell out and then a few more left and I don't know, maybe a dozen guys quit that morning or whatever and then um they said okay all you guys that didn't quit go back in the barracks get a couple more hours of sleep and then so we all ran back in and i remember wiping the frost off the window and looking out there and man they pt'd those poor quitters for at least a good couple of hours and then kicked them out of the course just for gp and i was like (laughs) I was like, I think I'm gonna like this place. Mind games. It was, it was pretty interesting. So that was kind of the start of my special operations career. My introduction to uh, to getting hard. So yeah, it was great. I had no complaints. It was a uh, it was exciting times for a young man.
0: Well, it seems you know like right from the start, you're you're ready to get at it, uh, whether that be ranger, special forces, whatever. You knew that there were steps. I've, I've heard you in other interviews also say that as you go through all of these schools, and there's plenty, we'll get to those in a little bit, but as you go through these schools, as you go through these units, you're going through what you termed as filters, and as you go through each filter, you're getting better and better, and not only are you getting better and better, but everyone around you is getting better and better. And so it seems in contrast to me now what you do, because you teach a lot of people, a lot of different things, civilians, everything like that. You do all this elite stuff for all these years. You have the best of the best. You say it over and over in interviews about how good the guys were around you. How do you take that into what you do now?
1: Well, I, I think that my experiences have allowed me to kind of boil everything down to it kind of to its raw essentials that somebody needs to know. Um, I think sometimes in the military, because you have so much time, like we would joke, sometimes you might go to a school and you're like, yeah, they cram two weeks of information into eight weeks, you know, typical military thing, because it's the military. They can, they're, they're not a for-profit organization. They have the time to do these things and they can spend a lot of time going over all the minutia and all these little things. Whereas. I think when I'm training somebody, I, you know, as an example, my daughter's 13 years old and she says, daddy, uh, it was, um, right before last Christmas, she goes, daddy, um, can you get me a knife for Christmas? And I was like, Oh my God, I think I'm going to cry. This is so beautiful. You know, it was just like, of course I could get you a (laughs) knife. So, so I did, but you know that, but then I was thinking, I was like, if she gets attacked tomorrow by somebody who's trying to abduct her and drag her into a van and take her away or whatever i don't have 10 years to teach her a black belt or have her you know jump up into a flying spinning back kick judy ninja chop or whatever i want her to be able to have a skill that i teach her today that she can use immediately tomorrow that has the highest probability of saving her life So when I look at training civilians, I kind of approach it from that direction. It's like, if I can teach you these basic things and you can do this, it has the highest probability of saving your life. If we have more time later, I can help you refine those and add more skills on top of those. But if I were to to prioritize the things that are important and then proportion my training to that, that's kind of how I like to approach training when I'm doing civilians or, or if I know I only have this unit or these folks for X amount of time. And then they're going right into the box. Well, I don't have any time to teach them any fluff. I need to teach them things that are effective, that have the highest probability of saving their lives and their friends' lives immediately right now. So that's kind of how I approach training a little bit differently, um, as a civilian now working with, um, you know, doing these short duration, high intensity type courses.
0: And talking about the schools that you did, you got Ranger, Special Forces, Advanced Special Operations, and I'm just going to name a few of them, Special Operations Sniper. Uh, you went to Special Forces Medic, Airborne, Jumpmaster, Halo, you know, all these different schools. Is there any of the schools that you took that either you thought this was a bad idea, that you didn't do so great, or that you had to repeat or anything like that in order to kind of get it down. And the reason I asked that question is because a lot of people these days fail at something and they walk away from it. Um, And that's the end of it. Uh, I don't, I don't see that as you, but I wondered if there was ever, because if someone can look to someone like you and go, there were stumbling steps along the way. I think that goes a long way in, uh, helping to teach them that you got to overcome stuff.
1: Yeah. I, you know, knock on wood, I was real fortunate. Um, when I went to school, sometimes luck is better than skill. Every day. um, I, 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 you know, both in combat too. I got lucky on more than one occasion when, you know, I should have got schwacked, but, um, uh, fortunately things worked out for me, but, you know, I don't know the number of great operators that I knew who had to go through selection more than once, who got recycled in Ranger School or started out as an 18 Delta, but ended up as an 18 Bravo, you know, in the Q course. Um, gosh, when I went to the Q course, it, the 18 Delta course used to be at Fort Sam Houston down here in Texas. We started with 88 guys that started my class out at Fort Sam Houston, and we graduated eight without recycling oh, man yeah back then they just did not care and you know i think they've improved their process now i think the medics now are just they don't have the attrition rate we used to but i think they're just as well trained if not better than they are now probably just efficiencies in training and, and and those type things but you know we picked up i don't know 17 recycles from the class in front of us but I remember later on guys that washed out of the course, I would see them in group and now they're an 18 Charlie or an 18 Bravo and they were stellar performers. You know, it's no big deal. Just that just wasn't their gig or, you know, whatever. So I, I, I think you just have to stay after it just because, you know, uh, it's like that whole Edison thing, you know, he found 10,000 ways not to make the light bulb, you know, but he never quit and we ended up with light bulbs. So thank you, Edison, you
0: know, so it's kind of. Thanks for not quitting.
1: Yeah, thanks for not quitting. Nobody likes quitter. So, I mean, so it's just kind of one of those things you gotta, you know, life's gonna throw you curveballs. You just have to uh, keep swinging, you know, if that's all you're getting and uh, never quit. You know, business is a lot like that. Since I've stepped out, business has been a very, very difficult thing for me. Um, I didn't really understand it and I probably still don't. It's. I went in the army when I was 17 and got out when I was 43. So you're kind of institutionalized, kind of like being in prison, but different. Um, and you don't understand how the world works. And then you step out and you're like, oh, you're very idealistic and you think things are going to, and now they don't. So, it, you know, and so for me, it's been this process of just continually learning every time, um, you know, something doesn't work out. You're like, oh, I need to be smarter on this. Um, Carlos Machado, has a, a great adage. There's no win or lose in jujitsu. There's only win and learn. And um I, I think that is a great uh adage to to approach life with that, you know, you live in the greatest country in the world. You have all these opportunities. There's no reason to beat yourself up that bad. You know, there's all kinds of safety nets here for us and you can you can get after it and be whoever you want to be.
0: When you talk about the the medical course, they they say that that's the most difficult of the courses, uh, just because it's so intense. You learn so much. You work in trauma yeah. facilities and all those different kinds of things. But I think you're right when you talk about how they're trained today. I was I can't remember who I was talking to, but we were talking about how technology had advanced uh, on the battlefield and and just in the military in general, and they were telling me that. <clears throat> Rangers now can do like transfusions in the field. They, 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 you know, they mark everybody, what they are, what their blood type is, and they can do transfusions and keep guys alive exponentially longer than they could before. And I, I think you're correct when you're saying better trained, but I also think that we are being able with technology to put so many Mm -hmm. fail safes in place that um i can't even imagine what's headed for the future of it
1: yeah the, you know one thing you know war is an ugly thing but one of the things it does is it forces technology to evolve you know look at world war ii look at all the advances that came out of that you know from aviation to ships to submarines etc um and then same thing with uh you know since nine eleven. I look at the kit our night vision, our stuff we use to do halo ops with our Intel collection drones, like the advancements that we've had over the last 20 years have just been exponential. And fortunately, I think that our technology really gives us an advantage because there's tough guys everywhere on the planet. I mean, you can find people who are hard and tough and, you know, um, can shoot well and all that, but it's being able to integrate all those things together that are really important. And unfortunately, so much of our technology has been leaked out, stolen, replicated. You know, by other um, by other countries. Now we probably don't have the technological advances that we once had. But we have to continue to push the envelope on that and, you know, keep some of those things close to our chest, I think, as we move forward, because that really does give us an advantage, you know, on the battlefield to be able to have some of those enablers or things that give us those advantages, you know, just to get the jump on on our adversaries.
0: I think you would agree, too, that just because we have technology, like you said, we might not have the technological advantages, but I think the human characteristic that goes into that technology and how it's applied uh, speaks in volumes about the United States. We may not have the technical advantage anymore or the technological advantage, but we definitely have the desire to use that to its utmost ability. And I'm talking, whether you're talking law enforcement, first responders, military, special operations, when you look at that and see what guys are willing to do and girls are willing to do to kind of use that technology to the best that it can and come up with inventive ways to use it, I think it it, it speaks a lot about who we're going up against.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, You know one of the things that we would select for out at special forces selection later on in my career when i was a sergeant major i got to do a little work out there and some different test beds we were trying to assess what made the best assessor like the the green berets you know because it's like let's make sure we have the right guys who are selecting the candidates you know that are coming out and so um we kind of looked at all these different things and you know one of the things that we analyzed in our, in the candidates is their ability to be flexible and adaptable. And I think that kind of goes a little bit to what you're talking about. And I think that in all aspects, um, your ability to be flexible and adaptable is really, really critical to be able to adapt to your enemy, adapt to your environment, whether it's in business, whether it's in a gunfight, whatever it is. Um, I think about uh, Stephen Ambrose wrote a book, Citizen Soldier," where he talked about um the American soldiers after d day coming in and fighting in France and the cities It kind of it was like um saving private ryan we 've all seen that movie where you know the Germans had the sandbag positions in the buildings, and the Americans were going in and it was this close real visceral fighting well their s o p there was is that you would take your grenade, pull the pen, throw it in the room it would blow up and then you'd go in and shoot anybody who's wounded. Makes perfect sense, it sounds logical, but the Germans got smart to that. They had the sandbag positions. So the grenade would go in, they would duck down, grenade would blow up, they would pop back up, guns up, wait for you to come to the door and they would shoot these guys down. Well, he talks about in the book, there was this good old boy from Tennessee who took his grenade, threw it in the room, immediately followed it in, pulled his 45 out, and shot the Germans in the back of the head And then reached down, picked his grenade up and went to the next room. (laughs) And what he was doing, he was being flexible and adaptable. He knew the commander's intent. He knew the end state of what he was going for. He knew the tools he had available, but he, he was adaptable in how he applied them. And, and, and I think that kind of speaks to the adaptability that you have to have, you know, out there and. I think Americans are really good at that of being a little bit out of the box. Um, I think sometimes we get caught up though. Like I think this is one of the problems we had with both Iraq and Afghanistan is we, we were adapt flexible and adaptable at a tactical and operational level. But I think we weren't adaptable enough to adapt how we manned ourselves to win the war that we were fighting. And what I mean by that is that even within special operations, your career path follows a certain schedule where you can only do so much time on a team and then you get promoted then you go here, then you gotta switch, you gotta go here. And for officers, poor guys, it's even worse for them. You know, we spend 18 months putting them through the Q course and language school. They get to spend 18 months on a team and then they're out, you know? So just about the time they figure out like how the thing works, they've got to move on because now they're getting promoted. They got to go to, you know, the advanced course and they're getting ready to make major and, you know, and for special operations, the thing that we care about is not physical terrain. Physical terrain doesn't mean anything to us. What matters to us is human terrain because you know what I heard part of your interview with, um, Rick lamb and he had talked about when they were in Panama, they had trained with some of the very guys that they're going to go to fight with. They had a, they had a relationship with them. So it was very easy where you go, Hey, do we need to kill them? Or should I call them on the phone? I got a good idea. Let's call them on the phone and let's just settle this and it'll just be good. And everybody's good. No one's going to get hurt. Well, what happens is because we rotate ourselves through, on these rotations, like on, on our teams, or like a team would go to Afghanistan, then they would leave, and then they would come back six, eight, nine months later, and then they would send them to a different place with different people. But they don't. Care, but we don't care about the train, we needed to care about the people. And the only way to win people is you have to be there for a career. You have to be there for the entire time. So it's, it's kind of like, I worked in Venezuela, I trained some snipers down there, years ago this is pre-chavez but later chavez took over and then it became a socialist country and dictator and blah 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 and the the country really spiraled down hugo chavez back when he was a young captain in the army probably trained with a seventh special forces group team and somebody had face to face with him but because we rotated out that team never saw him again we lost that relationship, and so as he moved up the ladder, there was no relationship. You, you see what I mean, and so I I yeah. think for special forces, we really have to focus on people, but we have to man ourselves to focus on people, and not just continually cycle the next guy through. It's you know there's no other organization in the military that does that, and so.
0: You know, when you say that, not to interrupt you, but when you say that and and you talk about having that in law enforcement, it's called beat responsibility. And what it is, is you're assigned a certain sector. You learn your bad guys, your good guys, your talkers, your non-talkers, all that kind of stuff. So that when something happens, you immediately can go out, get on the ground, know what's going on. And it, it, in theory brings down crime, which I I believe in that it does, but you know where to go. When yeah. you talked about Afghanistan and you say they come in, they're there for however long, they they leave, they come back six to nine months later, and then they have the problem because they get put in a new area. I would think another factor in that is if you put them back in the same area that they were at, you learn who's still around, who didn't make it out, whose families. I don't want to use the word revenge or anything like that, but who you can really use to kind of take the fight to the bad guys, because there's going to be people in that area that have way more emotional attachment to what's going on in that area than even you guys do. Of course, you'll have it from coming back and forth to it. But if you're talking to someone who had their son killed, their wife killed, their husband killed, they're going to want to get those bad guys out of there. So that stuff doesn't happen again.
1: Yeah, you know, in our human intelligence courses, you know, we we use the acronym MICE for people's motivations: money, ideology, compromise, ego. And I think during the war, we added probably a couple. One was retribution, and the other one is health. You could probably add add those in. But retribution is kind of what you're talking about, where people are uh, invested in making sure that this doesn't happen again um the only the only issue with retribution is is once people get retribution sometimes they're done so that doesn't necessarily mean that they're ide- ideologically predisposed to a long-term relationship to helping you but piggybacking on to what you said about how the police have this beat responsibility I'll, i've never heard it termed like that i like that so with your permission if i can use that term in the future i, I would appreciate that <laughs> yeah it's not um, my
0: term so
1: <laughs> um well, I'll give you credit.
0: Okay, um, good, good.
1: Yeah, I always, I always like to credit people when I, when I hear something. You know, I, I, I look at how we, how our rank systems in the military and how, especially, how officers their career path goes. Most of the great officers I ever worked with to always told me if I could stay a captain my whole career and stay on an A team, I would. Cause they weren't concerned with, you know, they didn't want to be general of the world. They wanted to do the job, but the problem was the way it's structured, it wouldn't allow them. Conversely, the way police forces work, you start at the bottom and what you're done being a Sergeant, you become a Lieutenant.
0: If you want to.
1: If you want to, exactly. And and I think, you know, I think that would have been a, maybe a better structure for us to follow Um, and then you get up to a certain level and maybe you split off to be a warrant officer where you stay on a team or you go you stay in o or you know you you know if you're a, a smart guy maybe you track to be an officer a little bit earlier but keeping people in place keeping them together longer you know my wife is a um, is a dentist and she was a dentist in the army and it was interesting as a captain she worked on people's teeth and then if she made major, she, she got out when she was a captain, but had she made major, if you're a major in the army and you're a dentist, you work on people's teeth. And if you become a Lieutenant Colonel, you work on people's teeth because that's their specialty. Well, I think for us, it should be people. Your specialty are, are those specific people and you have to stay with them when you're a captain, a major, you know, it's just like human infrastructure. I mean the, Our, the world is evolving. We are no longer with social media and our ability to connect around the world, like us having this conversation over the computer. It's smaller. It's much more relational. So we have to have a force that is more, more nimble to be able to handle relationships better and long-term, um. As an example, a friend of mine um, was high up in the Iraqi government um, on their intel side, and he's here in the States now. He got a special interest visa to be here. He helped the Americans over there. Just the guy's a great American. Um, I love him and his family. We hang out a lot together. And he told me, he goes, you know, you guys could have taken over Iraq without firing a shot. Everybody was terrified of Saddam Hussein. But we didn't have any relationships that would let us do that because we didn't know. You, you know what I mean? It's just yeah. you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. But at the same time, we never built the relationships, and it was all about. Well, let me ask you something,
0: you know? man, Jack. So, yeah. with that, okay. when you talk about that having those relationships. D- Do you think we're always kind of playing behind the power curve on it? Because, yes, there are relationships. But when you look at going after a Saddam Hussein or uh, an Osama bin Laden or we're I don't want to say we're playing catch up because I don't think we're playing catch up because we know about these guys. But why is it that we're not on the ground doing more when we know? Because I think we have a lot of stuff coming up with Iran, China, that. I think if we get ahead of this, we can quell a lot of things before they happen. And you talk about if we had that relationship, but how do you have a relationship with those people? Because anytime that you well, not, I won't say anytime, but when you look through history, some of the relationship we've formed have come back and bit us in the ass in the end um, by having those relationships that you're talking about.
1: Well, you know, a couple things. I, I would say the only people that can defeat the US military is the US government. And we're really, really freaking good at it. What you mentioned, Iran and China, what they're doing is what I'm talking about. They already have the relationships, because we invite them into our country to go to our colleges and do all these things. And they meet with people at all levels of our government through business and everything else. And those people are tasked with building relationships. And you can bet that those relationships go very high. I mean, if you look at some of the decisions that are made, it makes, you know, you kind of wonder, why did we make that decision that would benefit that country and not our country? You know, and I don't pretend to have all the information, people at high levels, I, I like to give them the benefit of the doubt and assume that they're making a, a decision based upon information that I don't have. Right. You know, so, um, you know, it's it's easy to play, you know, armchair quarterback when you don't have all Absolutely. the information to say, I would do this or that. But I would say that those countries are playing the long game on us and they're not stuck to a regimented way of thinking on warfare. Um, they're definitely thinking asymmetrically on uh, how to infiltrate and um, do us harm if they want to. So.
0: And and if you look at it over the history of war, because I, I can tell from talking to you that you're a student of the history of war, there's so many more fronts now than there ever has been. You have cyber fronts. You have, you know, yeah. There there there's... You know, the actual battlefront, the cyber front. There's so many different ways that we're conducting warfare. Even when you talk about not cyber warfare or on the battlefield, crashing economies, uh, there's so many different ways to go. How do we stay with that? How do we continue to be at the forefront? Because I, I think you would agree that that's not something that's taught.
1: Well, I mean, we've got a lot of really super intelligent, capable people within our intelligence agencies and the military that study these things. But but again, those agencies are all run by our government, (laughs) essentially.
0: By guys that didn't study that.
1: Well, yeah. And this is a good thing. I mean, because you can get we don't need to be run by a military dictator type thing. We need to have those checks and balances. That's what makes our country great. We definitely need to have those things, but at the same time, you know, one side needs to listen to the other and there's this balance, you know, you have to be in the middle somewhere and go, okay, this is, you know, a smart way to do business and, um, you know, how to approach a problem. But the, you know, the asymmetric warfare group, that's all they do is study asymmetric warfare, you know, whether it's the bioweapons, whether it's cyber, whether it's, you know, our, le- you know, electrical grids, whether, you know, our economy, all these things that you're talking about, these, these are all, um, these are all things that they consider with, you know, again, within the military, I think we need to be more specialized and have people who are more refined at very specific things that they do um you know i always say that uh in your military career they always want you to go to all these different things so you can be well-rounded well you need to be well-rounded well i always say i've never seen a bowling ball on the end of a spear you know it's always something that's very sharp and pointy and very laser-like focused on what it's going after and i think that we need people in these respective disciplines to be the absolute best at what they do. And then you put them all together because now you have elite people who are all the best, the most elite at those individual things. And you put them together collectively, then there's a great synergy in that to be able to do things. But all of this takes leadership at all levels. And, um, you know, even with the way we turn over so much, it's hard to keep continuity. I think sometimes on projects, just because, just because of how we man ourselves, how, how, how we turn over.
0: So. Well, you bring up a good point. And I, I, I want to talk to you about this in your career, you know, before this, we talked about, we're going to go by year, but I think we've gone off into something else. So I, this is how I want to kind of bring it together.
1: Okay.
0: Instead of going over the years, you focused on very specific things during your career. I mean, there's a lot of things that continue to pop up over the time frames that we talked about counterterrorism, hostage rescue, dignitary protection, and medical. So with you going to those things, I want to first talk about counterterrorism because we're kind of talking about it right now. But with the way that you focused on it in your career, let's talk about how it started when you started with counterterrorism and how it's evolved through until you got out, and even today if you're still following up on it.
1: Wow. That's a, that's a big, broad, big, broad stroke. Um, I I initially, when I went to special forces, well, first starting in the Rangers, you know, everything is kind of, you know, we were doing airfield seizure a lot back then that was kind of our bread and butter, Um, you know, like, like they did in Panama, you know, jump in secure the airfields and then, you know, follow on force, et cetera. But airfield seizure was kind of a, a bread and butter. Then we did a lot of direct support for tier one units for, for doing CT or counterterrorism or, or HR type missions. Um, but then, you know, when I left there and I went to SF, you know, we had a very hard fit focus, um, foreign internal defense. This is pre nine 11. And then I was on the halo team. So I did that for three or four years. And then I went to one of our CT companies, which was, um, down in Panama. Like when you were talking to Rick, he was, um, and uh, probably in C37 down there, which was our our CIF company or an extremist company, which which is a specialized company within the Special Forces groups. They've since morphed a little bit. They're doing other specialized mission sets now. But um, the you had to go through an eight week hostage rescue counterterrorism school at, at Bragg before you could go to that unit and they specialized on doing those specific tasks and then those units we worked a lot with uh, allied um ct units so that we would have relationships in those respective countries when something happened there that affected american citizens we already had a group of of uh you know american ninjas that could work with their ninjas you know so we you know we our our ninja throwing stars matched and all that kind of stuff so it, it was a um it was kind of a neat operation, but that's kind of how that started. So, um, I volunteered to go down to Panama. So I went through our CT school and then our sniper school, then I went down there and was an assaulter for, um, for a while. Then I went to our sniper team, um, and had a lot of fun doing that and got to go, you know, to different countries throughout central and South America, um, in support of, we were doing FID if you will, working with their CT units. A lot of that was back in the day, was focused on counter narcotics. It wasn't necessarily counter terrorism back then. You know, I think sometimes those, those terms can kind of get blurred together with narco terrorism and all kinds of stuff because of funding lines and different stuff like that. But where you want to split that hair kind of depends on uh, where you want to do that. But anyways, it was, um, that's kind of how I got, Started in that and I just really enjoyed the direct action part of it. You know, it was very um, You know, it's kind of like in the police, you know You got those guys that want to be SWAT guys all the time and that's kind of their focus and you know, you know And for the young guys, it's kind of the chest beating uh, You know, I'm I'm the best guy and you know, as you get older you kind of figure out you're like, well, yeah yeah, Yes you, you have to be smart. Um, you know, as I got older, I, I figured out, it was really, you know, our, our targeting acronym, uh, fine, fix, finish, exploit, analyze, disseminate the F3 EAD process that we use for targeting. Uh, I we think that's a lot the
0: longest acronym I've ever heard in my entire life.
1: F3 EAD. Oh, that's a short one, <laughs> man. You need, you gotta, you gotta get with the, with the military. And, oh yeah. That's, that's an easy one, but it's not really an, I guess it is an acronym, but anyways, it was a. Uh, we focused on finish, you know. Once somebody's found and they're fixed to a location, well, then we're going to go in and give them the good news by whatever means we need to, you know, whether it's drop a bomb, shoot them with a sniper rifle, kick their door in, blow their car, whatever, you know, it's like that's finish. Um, but w- what we found was over the wards, like that's the easy part, you know, I can kind of get monkeys to do that part. I mean, it's good. You want good monkeys that can do it. But at the same time, it was the finding and fixing people to a location. That was the hard part. It's fine. You know, it was like Osama bin Laden. Once we found them, finishing them was, that was really, you know, there was nothing super special about, you know, flying in on helicopters landing and kicking somebody's doors in and giving them the business. It's like, that's the easy, hard part was finding and fixing that guy to a location. And so, I found in counterterrorism it was the same way. It was, you know, what we're doing these counterinsurgency type things. And so I tried to focus our guys to get smarter on the human intelligence and understanding the collection assets and how all this worked together. And then one of the things we did is we kind of got rid of the line between operations and intelligence because intelligence became operations and operations became intelligence because of this cyclical nature of our targeting cycle. Um so it was again. It's all about being smarter and being able to think faster to re- at all levels, not just at a tactical level, a shooting level, but also at an operational and strategic level to be able to outthink your bad guys.
0: Let's talk about the counter narcotics for a minute. Um, you you kind of interlope those two together: uh, counterterrorism, counter narcotics, narco terrorism. A- at the time you were doing them, um, you're you're talking about what years right now
1: well i think my first really jump into that was probably my second deployment in special forces i got sent down to bolivia i would just come back from ecuador i was home about two weeks um and they said hey we need you to go down to bolivia you're going to run a hospital out in the middle of the jungle in bolivia in support of operation snowcap okay Great, right. yeah so i'm 22 years old 23 maybe i don't know it's pretty young um you know special forces medic all gung-ho ready to go so i jump on a civilian plane i fly down to la paz um which is very high by the way it's like 14,000 feet there it's like hard to breathe there that's so what i was high.
0: about to say yeah
1: highest capital in the world it's kind of interesting and so i went to um I went to the Capitol, went to the embassy, got, got my brief. I thought, you no, know, I was going to go get briefed. Really. It's just, they threaten you with all the things you're not allowed to do when you go there. So I remember the mail group commander sitting me down, telling me what I wasn't, was not allowed to do that. I was going to go to this base camp where this hospital was, and I was not allowed to leave there under any circumstances. And yes, sir. Absolutely, sir. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, not, none of that. And of course, you know you do what you do but um so I, I go down there we fly in um and it was like something out of a vietnam movie we landed on this dirt airstrip um, it was in this little twin engine thing it was a little tiny plane and this this old bolivian guy picks me up in an old world war ii jeep or like something out of vietnam and he you know i throw my pack in there and he drives me to this little um, I don't know it was like it was a hut but like a nice one you know it was it had like a a metal roof and concrete floors <laughs> but um and it had a little kitchen and a bath and everything he's like this is your hooch and i was like okay great and then next to it was where a little our little hospital was and when i say hospital it's like an eight bed clinic if you will and it had a little laboratory area where i could do labs and it had a little pharmacy and a little labor and delivery and a little surgical you know suite if you will and I said, all right this is good so it was getting dark I went to bed and I wake up and somebody's banging on my door. I just hear this boom, 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 boom. Somebody's banging on my door. I'm like, what in the heck's going on? So, you know, I'm trying to, you know, figure out what's going on. I just got shorts on. So I throw a t-shirt on real quick and my flip-flops and I go to the door and there's a an Bolivian soldier standing there. And he says to me in Spanish, he says, There's a lady having a baby in the prison. And so I repeated back to him in my Spanish. My Spanish wasn't great back then, but it was, you know, I could kind of understand what was going on. I said, so you're telling me there's a lady having a baby in a prison. He's like, yes, you know, he's like, come on, you know, get your stuff. So I run over to the hospital and I grab a, a basin and uh, some suction things for, uh, um, you know, for the baby's nose and some umbilical clamps and scissors and gauze and water and just like all the stuff I could think of to grab real quick. And so I run over to this prison and sure enough, I am in a, on the other side of this little base, they have a prison like you would expect to see in a third world in the jungle. And it had all those rich smells and, you know, odors that are very pleasant. And so on one side of the prison down the hallway, you had the men. And then on the other side, you had the women, right? That's great. And there was kids in there too. I thought, well, this is festive. I'm not sure what's going on here. So I go down, one of the doors is open.
0: Can I ask how she got pregnant? Was she pregnant before she got put in prison or while I'm, she was gonna, in
1: prison? I'm going to assume before, because what I later found out was, is that when they, when they would arrest people like trafficking drugs or whatever, they would put the whole family in prison.
0: I, that solves the problem. I mean, you don't have to well, worry about it. generational taking over.
1: Well, they had nowhere else for them to go. It's like, well, if you took dad to prison, what are you going to do with mom and the kids? Are you going to go <laughs> off in the jungle or something? So I, maybe it was a humanitarian type thing. I wasn't exactly sure how long, if it was a holding place or, <laughs> you know, I was just trying to survive at this point. So, so I, I go in this cell and there's these like older ladies sitting on a couple of cots and there's this young lady laying on the floor and the, all the women had on like these multicolored like skirts, like the, the Indians would wear there They're like multiple layers and real colorful, real pretty like dresses. And this girl's laying on the floor and she's grunting. She's going, uh, uh, and I was like, okay, she's having a baby. Then I look in the corner of the room and I see a little baby wrapped up in like swaddling clothes, like at Christmas, you know? So real quick, I run over there to the baby and I like, check it out, do the little Apgar scale thing and make sure baby's good. You know, it's breathing good colors, good, you know, respirations. I'm like, okay, baby's good. Maybe she's having twins. So I go back. And, um, she's got her skirt pulled over her knees. And so I go down to the action end of thing and I pick her skirt up and I just stop, and I was like, okay, I'm not sure what planet I'm on right now, but her umbilical cord, she hadn't delivered her placenta yet. So the umbilical cord was tied off with a shoestring. The other end of the shoestring was tied to her big toe and she was tugging on it with her big toe going, "Ah, <laughs> uh, ah." Uh. The defining moment as a young man, I was just like, "Yep, I just saw that." So,
0: yep, I'm in like, Bolivia. Right
1: <laughs> so I cut the shoestring away from her toe. Yeah, and I said, "I'll take care of getting the placenta out." So I got the placenta out, made sure all the endometrium was there, everything was good, and then I told a the guard there, "I go, okay, <laughs> we played enough." I said, "We're going to take this young lady, baby," and then I looked around for the most competent-looking older lady, and that one. And they're all coming to the hospital with me. And uh, so I had guests at the hospital for the next couple of weeks. Um, yeah, it was just bizarre. But every day was something like that there. It was just, we'd have, I don't know how many kids I delivered down there, or somebody would walk three days through the jungle with a machete stuck in their head, or, you know, got bit by some whatever, and they put a tourniquet on it, and it's been there for three days. And it was just, it was a—it uh, was quite an experience. So- I remember what when
0: How many in, people are there with you? Well, I'm talking, was, I'm talking like U S military or U S uh, you know, people with you. How many are, are you,
1: there was a contingent of DEA guys. there doing, um, counter narcotics stuff. Right. Because, because then when they would go out on missions and it was going to be somewhere nasty, they'd be like, Hey Jack, um, would you like to come out with us? And I was like, we're not leaving the base. Right. And they're like, no so
0: <laughs> were they so, were they not no yeah no so
1: yeah so it was uh, i would just wear sterile fatigues grab a backpack and throw my my aid stuff in it jump on a helicopter and another interesting thing there was flying with bolivian pilots and hueys over triple canopy jungle and the amazon was a was a was a was another neat experience um, cause if you punch through that triple canopy jungle in a helicopter, it'll, it'll be like something from Raiders of the lost ark. They'll never find you again. Oh. I mean, it's gonna be yeah. I mean, it's just, yeah. But, uh, but it was fun. Luckily it all, it all worked out and I got to see some, uh, the natives there that I got the bows and arrows actually in my house of the actual natives that lived down there that made them, I traded them a machete for them. So it was pretty cool.
0: Well, when you're down there, um, is this different from, I mean, it seems in you and I talking and reading through your career and stuff, that seems like that's the most uh, alternative thing you ever did.
1: What do you mean by alternative? I'm not following you.
0: It doesn't seem like a normal like you're the only guy there. You're with some DEA guys there. You're kind of out on your own. You're a special forces guy, but but you're yeah. doing a different kind of job. I mean, I mean, in all terms, and you know, you were the village doctor. I yeah, mean,
1: and, yeah, pre nine eleven, there was quite a bit of that type of stuff going on. We used to do tons of onesies and twosie missions, um, you know. But after nine eleven, everything became you deployed as a unit because your whole team, your whole unit, your whole, everybody had to go. Um, but back in the day, there was a lot of these like little, and, and I think as a medic too, you kind of got thrown into that. And there were, we were so short medics back then. We didn't even have one for every team. So I would come off a deployment with my team and then a red cycle tasking or, our uh, support cycle would come up. And then you go, Hey, we need you to go like this was That was a, a red cycle tasking. Like that was a support mission. That wasn't a, you know, a mission for a whole team. It was just like, Oh yeah, this whoever requested for a SF medic to be down there. And it was neat. One of the, one of the neat guys I got to work with down there was a the deal, an old SOG guy from Vietnam that was working ops for the DEA. And so he was a green beret, so it was really cool to, kinda of get to hang out with him and hear his old stories and he he was a neat old guy. We had a little the jungle bar. He used to run the jungle bar, so we'd drink drink beer and 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 uh he would tell the stories about Vietnam and he would play Linda Ronstadt song. So it was uh it was kinda of fun. Yeah.
0: Well I guess you're gonna have to explain because I'm I'm getting so many different pictures in my head of what this place in the jungle looks like i when i when i first hear it i think of like you said indiana jones and and things like that how well equipped was it are we talking you had electricity you had phone capability all that kind of stuff i mean i I understand we're talking
1: yeah there was electricity and phone you know we had an airfield there um it was more kind of like a probably more like the movies you see the vietnam base camps right yeah, more like that, you know, where they pushed out and jungle around it and that. And then the uh, the Bolivian Special Forces, the Umapars, um, also had a, a training base there. So they were there and, you know, cause they helped the DEA to go out and do uh, counter-narcotic stuff back then. So it was just, I don't know, I was just, I was just a young guy out, just trying to figure the world out and got thrown into these situations. But fortunately, getting back to the medical training, the, the Q course, the the amount of training they put you through, um, which is remarkable, because I was a straight C student in high school, um, just because I was really bored, and I, and I hated school, and I was like, wanted nothing to do with it, and then somehow they decided that I would be an 18 Delta, um, so I'm not sure how all that figured out, but the amount of training they put us through was really, really remarkable, because like I got to deliver some babies out on, a, out on a public health service hospital in New Mexico um, as part of my training, you know, I did a month out there and, you know, under the supervision of a doctor and everything. So when this thing came up, it was like, oh, well, luckily I've already done a few of these. So it all worked out.
0: I want to talk about a couple more things in your career and then get on to what you're doing now. But you received a Purple Heart. Uh, you received a bronze star. I want to talk a little bit about that and how those things came to be in your career, what you were doing at the time, kind of what rank we're at, where we're at in our career.
1: Um, both of those, well, I got two bronze stars, one with valor. Um, the other one was you know, I guess maybe one of those. Thanks for being there ones or whatever, but, um, (laughs) uh, it was both of those were in Iraq in '04, and that was a really, really heated time. And that was probably—I was a team sergeant at the time. I was a master sergeant, and that was probably probably one of the best times in my career. Being a team sergeant in SF, anyone will tell you that's been in SF—that is the best job in the army. When you get to be a team sergeant, you know you're a master sergeant. You've got some really competent senior NCOs working with you, and. It's just a great time, and I was in one of the one of our uh, CT companies um, for third group. They had stood one up right after nine eleven. It's whole another stories about that, but um, we were training the Iraqi counterterrorism force. I got to take them on their very first mission. In fact, they were the only unit left standing when ISIS came back in um, in two thousand fourteen. Um, really proud of that that was one of those missions that we did a pretty good job of maintaining relationships where we would do four months in four out four in four out and we would see the same people over and over so it got rid of the two steps forward two steps back we were able to maintain some continuity there but um I, I mentioned before that sometimes luck is better than skill. I'll, I'll relay a couple of stories to you that kind of articulate that. And one, one gets to the Purple Heart and, and the Bronze Star um, for that. But the um, we were doing a raid one night. It was a really nasty area. And they called our force in because they had some sensitive targets they wanted us to hit um, in a in a really dense urban population. So we linked up with the with some conventional forces, which I was glad because they had armor and moving and armor in cities is much better than not having armor. Um, just for obvious reasons. And we brought a specter gunship with us. So they were happy that we were there. We were happy that they were there. It was a good Kumbaya moment between, you know, soft and, um, you know, conventional forces and all those kids, the conventional kids were amazing. Just great Americans out there, you know, just just great Americans great kids but we pulled up behind our target building and it was surrounded by this compound wall and had adjacent compound walls of other other buildings and when we showed up like part of the wall looked like it had been pushed down or whatever and there was a great big fire going behind the behind the the structure our primary structure that we were going to go into And so i watched it burn for a little bit and i was like yeah it looks like it's burning and it was a big flame it was a big you know high real aggressive flame and i thought well man it's just something's on fire over there i'm gonna i'm gonna just go around and go around that fire and get in there and there was some occasional shooting going on and whatnot but you know we had bradley fighting vehicles and other people so the the shooting wasn't a big issue so i decided i told my guys said hey hang back i'm gonna go up here work my way around because that's our we're just use this as our breach point you know it's already here so um, I get up there and I get probably 15 yards from where this giant flame is and there's a huge explosion and I get blown back come fall back down to the ground and then I immediately move back but it was one of those moments where this big explosion happens and you know you're explosions and you hear gunfire and different stuff going on around you so you hit the ground and you get back up it's like after you've been in a car wreck you know what's the first thing you do you're like okay do i have all my pieces am i bleeding anywhere Do i got any holes in me no am i leaking fluid and so that's what i do i kind of get up do a functions check everything looks good don't seem to be you know leaking out too bad anywhere and then um i was like well not going to use that as a breach point so then my team leader he was just Super great guy. He was a prior enlisted guy. Amazing, amazing soldier. He, uh, he jumps on top of this Bradley and he's like, Hey, Brandon, run this damn thing through this wall over here. We're just going to help breach through it. So we went full uh, band of brothers just using tanks for breaches, which, uh, which was great, um, by the way. And then, um, so we breached through that wall and then put an explosive charge on another wall. Well, um, and then went in and, and cleared our target. And then that was the start of a 12-hour gunfight. That was about nine o'clock at night. We fought it out till about nine the next morning. So it went on and on and on. After we got in and cleared our primary target, one of my Iraqi soldiers came over to me. He's like, Sergeant Jack, you were bleeding. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And um, apparently I'd been hit by shrapnel or gunfire or something in my left forearm. And so... He was all proud because we just given him a first aid training so he pulled out his bandage and he wrapped my arm up for me and you know they got it on us I was like, get off me so anyways it was sweet in a in a weird kind of man way i guess but uh <laughs> and then uh and then you know you just went on but there was so much um later that night another guy on my team ended up getting a silver star um uh, Roger Watts, one of the greatest Americans in fact, he's just about to retire. He's the commandant of the special operations university at Tampa right now his command sergeant major down wow. there An amazing, amazing guy. And he was my, um, my senior medic and he and I were also good friends. And we'd been in Yemen together and Africa together and all over the place together, he, he was such a, uh, a great dude, but, uh, uh, a kid got shot up on. He was outside of a M one tank, like on a 50 and he got a guy jumped out of an alley shot a rpg and it cut the kid's arm off and blew his chest open and then he was just laid up on top of the tank and then they started hammering the tank with a uh, machine gun fire so roger just takes off like 50 meters across this big huge open intersection jumps on top grabs the guy pushes him down tourniquets the arm seals his chest up maneuvers the tank fires back just real hero stuff holy and, shit! yeah but that was you, you know it was so like I say that, so in comparison to what happened to me, I I just kind of blew it off. I was just like, man, I I don't wanna say anything about this. I'm gonna seem like a, you know, (laughs) like what kind of wuss is this guy, you you know what I mean? So anyway, all all that being said, it was those type of acts though, that you saw like that were nightly. And it was the greatest, greatest honor to be with men every single night, that would lay down their life for you. They would always be the guy who'd want to be first in the hole. Um, you know, to put their put their life in front of your life, and probably because they wanted to do the shooting. Normally, it was the number one guy that did most of the shooting, but it was. But that was that was just common. I mean, it was just that type of camaraderie, that type of. Um, love for your, your brother. I mean, there's, there was nothing else like that. And that was an every, every night event because we were out, I would say 90% of every night we were out. And usually once we went outside the wire, we stayed outside the wire and we just stayed after it and stayed after it and stayed after it just to, to make stuff happen. So the guys were amazing and it was just, you know, that. Um, so that's the Purple Heart story. Um, the Bronze Star for Valor, we raided another big, huge insurgent compound uh, that I won't name, but it had big, huge walls all around it and was all covered up. And um, our plan was was to kind of trap everybody in there and then sort them out as best we could. And so we had a, a Spectre gunship. had shot a bunch of bunkers around it to kind of so that we could approach the target um and our plan was we were in open humvees and we had an m1 tank from the conventional guys out in front of us and i don't know probably some other armored vehicles supporting us and they were just going to pull um outer perimeter security for us and we were going to take care of everything on the inside so um we we set off about 500 meters watched the light show from the specter gunship which was amazing by the way and then um As we started to approach the target, we split off. And I was going to take the assault force to the back side of the target. Um, uh, So we rode around again. We were in an open Humvee. And I was sitting in the passenger seat. The rest of the guys were kind of in the back of the Humvee, in the bed, if you will. And it was just open. Didn't have any doors. We were just kind of, we called it the angry porcupine. Everybody was just guns out. (laughs) And then uh, my team leader took the guys around to the front. They had an M1 tank in the front with them. And then, so the plan was we were going to, when our vehicle stopped around the back, we we're going to jump out, run to the, uh, you know, up to the target. We'd built this big um, wall charge or a go to hell charge, which is kind of the P for plenty charge. Cause we weren't really sure if we needed to breach through a wall or breach through a door or whatever it was. So the plan was slap the charge up, pull back, get to the minimum safe distance, clack that thing off and then go in there and, uh, and get it on. So the vehicle stops, I jump out of the passenger seat, I run up, and as, as i get up there the rear door of this compound is open i was like well that's nice so i thought they got the breach point open for me so i run in there and um there's these big huge columns that they had stretched like cables over and hung blankets over to make like these makeshift rooms all the way down on this thing and the targets maybe. I don't know, 60 meters by hundred meters long. It's a big, huge compound. It's surrounded by the walls like this and this overhead cover. So I go in and as soon as I go in, you know, I hear gunfire coming past me through these blankets and stuff. So I was like, oh crap, you know? So I, I, hung, I hunker down behind one of these pillars and I and I uh, pull out a frag and I just Johnny Appleseed that thing as far as I can uh, down the end over these things. You know because i knew I'd, I'd got in there before everybody I wasn't worried about fragging any of my guys and so it blows up and you know you know how grenades have that really sharp what they call a bursance like that real sharp crack that they make especially on concrete it was just i don't know it's really remarkable it's kind of neat sounding so anyways i pull back the the uh blanket and then you know clear this little makeshift room and there's food you know fresh plates of food and guns laying around and stuff and then i go down to the next one and then down to the next one and i, I only threw one frag and then i, I just threw some flashbangs after that because i was afraid the guys were behind me and i get down to the end i'd maybe made it i don't know 30 meters into the target down to the corner and several of these pillars you know doing this same clearing type thing down there and then i realized that i am totally and utterly alone <laughs> and so i yelled back i was like hey i need some support down here and uh, this kid on, on our one of our sister teams he runs up we call him combat carl real gq looking kid great operator he he's, he's like damn boss he goes we were wondering where you went he goes when the vehicle stopped it's because we hit a ditch he goes and so we all got piled up in the back he goes and you just took off and like, <laughs> all right so again god takes care of drunks and fools on that but you know, one of the interesting things that taught me, and this was in retrospect, this is something I was trying to do. Um, again, this was just me being stupid was I wondered why, because there was about 60 guys in there that night that, um, things worked out poorly for. And I wondered why they didn't stay there and kill me. Cause like there was a bunch of them down there. Cause I would sell their food and you know, all their stuff. And, um, what ended up happening is, as I was going through there, they ran down to the front right when they fired a main gun round through the, through the front door, um, kind of at an angle, at an oblique, so it wouldn't blast us on the other side. And then the rest of uh, the assault force came in and just you know cut these guys down to shreds. So, you know, I was wondering like, you know, why did they do that? And what it what it occurred to me was is what we talked about kind of at the beginning of this. It was fear. It was it was fear makes you make really bad decisions. So they assumed the worst because they were afraid. So they thought it will be better because they would, they didn't assume that it was just some lone dumbass coming in there who was out running his headlight. They, they assumed that you know, everybody and their brother was coming in there right. or a big assault force was coming in there. They could have just stayed there and easily cut me down to shreds and then you know, change and bottlenecked everybody right there at the breach point, but they didn't. You know, it's because fear. So I think going on the offense, having a, an offensive mindset, and pressing the fight. Like when I when I train police, I talk about this. I'm like, you know, when you get shot at, you have to you have to shoot back. You have to be very directed about what you're doing. You have to be able to press the fight, get the other guy's head down, put fear in their court, be able to maneuver and continually improve your position to. And never, ever get in the mindset of start getting in a defensive mindset and start thinking about all the bad things that can happen to you.
0: Now, I, I, I want to stop right there for a second, because I, I want your opinion because you train law enforcement.
1: <clears throat> yeah.
0: But I think you would agree with me that with the current climate and how it's changed, we'll even say over the past year and a half, I'll go two years at the max you're going to see a lot more guys thinking defensively. Absolutely. Not because that's what they want to do. That's what they have to do now.
1: Well, you know, I think with law enforcement, you, your job is tougher than than anybody's. There, there's no d- doubt about that. The other thing with law enforcement is you're dealing with American citizens. And so American citizens definitely get the benefit of the doubt. So it's a different set of rules that you play by with America as you should because we're talking about American citizens. Now, if someone's trying to kill you and you're in fear for your life or they're trying to kill somebody else, you have to be able to to use whatever force is necessary to stop the threat. You know, it's just like when I train law enforcement, we talk about stopping the threat. We don't necessarily, you know, when I was training military people, I would tell them to shoot people till they're obviously dead. Right. It's a different mindset. You know again we're dealing with american citizens they deserve that because they're american citizens that's the right thing to do i think leadership plays a huge huge factor i've trained a whole different variety of agencies and i can see the leadership culture or the the emphasis that or the backing that they know that what they know their leadership will tolerate definitely has the ripple effect All the way down to the lowest level as to how aggressive a guy will be however having said that i have found that a person's ability to deal with a situation violently and end it very efficiently and very like highly skilled is directly proportional to their ability to handle something peacefully because ultimately you know that you're gonna win the fight no matter what, if it comes to its worst conclusion, its worst type of conflict where it's you or me, if you know you're going to win, you're willing to keep it in the peaceful realm longer because you know that you're going to win. So it allows you, it allows the officer to be more calm, to verbally de-escalate things at a much for a much longer time and think more creatively because you're not getting stressed out. And then your problem, you know, it's not the old hammer nail thing where all your only tools, a hammer and all your problems look like nails, right? Because you have more tools, you can go, Oh, I need to use the screwdriver for this one, or I need to use the nail puller. I need, you know, you don't have to use the hammer every single time. So I think sometimes it's a training issue um, where guys, if you don't have enough training and all you've been taught to do is, well, if it gets really bad, pull your gun out and shoot. You know, it's, you know, if you're, um, strange thing. Like when I started training police, I found out that they had defensive tactics guys and they mm-hmm. had firearms guys.
0: Two and separate that, things.
1: And it, it, it baffles my It still baffles my mind. Cause I go, well, how does that work? Like, how do you get to choose which fight you get to be in? You, you, you know what I mean? It's like, cause you'll it, 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 no, get guys No, no, no. Who-
0: I, I know exactly what you're saying, but, but here's the thing. Yeah. I believe that they don't incorporate the two because that puts them at a disadvantage with what the public thinks. You can't – now, listen, I, I'm not saying I believe that at all. What I'm saying yeah. is I'm looking at it, I'm telling you from – and this goes back to what I was talking to you about when when we were talking and and I said that things are run by people that haven't necessarily done it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
0: that's what I go back to here. You have a lot of people that are trying to make rank, trying to save their career, uh, becoming very political. It has nothing to do with law enforcement, It has nothing to do with public safety. It has to do with building a career. And so the problem that you have is you get into these people where they look at the vision of the public and that's all they look through. It it is something I, I, I agree with you. The vision of the public is something that you should always take into consideration because you need to know what the public's thinking. But when you only look through that lens, like you use the hammer and nail, when you only look through that lens, there's not alternatives. You cannot put the two together. And 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 I believe that that's where we're headed.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, again, back to leadership, if if somebody's only concerned about their career, then they're missing the whole point of being a police officer a police officer is in a job that is self-sacrificing. And if you're a careerist, that is the opposite of self-sacrificing. And so you can't do both. You're either somebody who's willing to sacrifice themselves for the betterment of their community, their neighbor, their family, their whatever, or you're the other. So, you know, I think it's one of the reasons why I like how police promote, because I think it lends itself more to somebody who's been there and done that and understands where the guys are at. Whereas, um, in the, in the military structure, we don't always get that. I would say most, not all, um, most of the great officers that I've worked for have all been prior enlisted guys. I, figured I won't say you would that. Say that. All, I, I won't say all of them. Cause I've met some other ones who were absolutely stellar, amazing. You know, you hear people joke about West pointers, they're oh, this or that. I've, worked with some West Point officers who were amazing. Um, I worked for one of the squadron commanders when I was working up in Mosul, um, who I think the world of. And um, in fact, he's still in, I'll say who he is, but you know, he just, he's, uh, um, you know, he was just one of those guys, you could tell, he was there for the guys, he was there to get the job done. And, you know, so it really doesn't matter the, maybe where you come from it really matters about the person's heart and what kind of person they are you know and, and it's a matter of promoting the right people um you know regardless of their their educational background their race their this or that i mean who cares about any of that you know what what matters is the person you know?
0: i agree There's, with you i i you know, agree 100 you know. percent that that's the way it should be i worry that that's not the way it is necessarily all the time right now, and I worry it only gets worse. And And I'll bring an example yeah. into it. Who introduced us? Greg, fantastic yeah. sergeant, fantastic yeah. sergeant. Been there, done Great. that, went yeah. all the way up through, and now he's in charge of guys that he's telling to do the same things that he did. But you have other people, and we don't need to get into who they are, but they take a sergeant's exam. And six months later, after they're off probation, they take a lieutenant's exam. And then they promote to lieutenant. And then six months later, they get selected to be a major. And you're talking about a guy with 15 years on, 16 years on that has a star. It's, yeah, it's insanity.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think any large organizations are going to be prone to those. Absolutely. Those type of things. And, you know, the, I think the best thing you can do is get into a position where you can change those, you know, you can't just bitch about it. You have to like, at some point you have to. You know, we we could probably go talk for hours and hours about politics and
0: absolutely, you know,
1: um, our our current um, our our, our thoughts on, on current affairs and, and whatever and why we're in this and, and all that. I take a little bit different approach to it, but you know, again, another discussion. But it's um, it is it's all about the person, you know, and and again, people who are I I just did some guest speaking at a Thing, uh, some training I did in Louisiana for some police officers, and I told them that, uh, you know, it's a rare breed of person that volunteers to sacrifice themselves for others. You know, this is a, this isn't a new concept. This is the whole, you know, it's a Christ concept. It's the, it's the whole thing behind freedom. I mean, it's, it's what our whole country was built upon. That even, you know, you elect people that are going to represent you. They're going to sacrifice themselves to represent the people that elected them, you know, and it's not about them, it's about you. And so that's, you know, that's that's kind of where we're at with that. So anyways, again, another discussion we could go <laughs> on, and on and on for.
0: So let's, let's finish up your, your military career. Uh, you and I were talking real quickly and I want to talk about this because, uh, I think it lends to what kind of person you are. We've talked about that the entire time, but, but this is to be noted. Um, you had told me about that. You went out on a mission. You came back, you felt horrible. They drew some blood, did some tests. And, um, I I want you to kind of walk us through that.
1: Yeah, it was my last trip um in the military i was getting close to 25 years i was going to retire 25 years anyway um i was up in mosul i was the uh, special operations task force hard major up there and um, we were out every night going after aqim or you know what later became isis and uh so you know i'd been there for several months and we were at it pretty hard and it was probably If not, you know, my my early days in the war, getting to be the sergeant major of one of our CT units, um, one of our SIF companies, I had the most amazing group of guys that I worked with. I just, it was like, they were all, they were all elite people, you know, it wasn't the unit we were in, it was they individually held themselves to a high standard and conducted themselves to a high standard and trained to be that person every single day. And it was amazing. So um, whenever I could, I would go out on missions with the guys, um, you know, as a Sergeant Major, you kind of get to do whatever you want to do. So I, I would interject myself and some, you know, usually when you get to that level, the, the troops don't want you with them. Cause they're God damn it. The Sergeant Major's with us, you know, but I had pretty good rapport with them at night. I would build knives with them because I like to hand forge knives and stuff. So anyways, um, we were, you know, we were going out doing missions and I just told him, listen, guys, I'm here for top cover for you. If anything weird happens and I'm here, I got you. I'll take care of it. You know, it was just like, I just want you to get out there and perform. Make sure we all come home together. You know, that was, that was my, uh, you know, my deal there. So anyways, went out one night, went on a mission and, um, I don't know, went went after some high level bad guys somewhere and, you know, we're giving them the business and my stomach felt bad. I felt like crap. And so we flew back landed at the base. And then, um, the sun came up the next morning and I still felt bad. So I went down to the combat support hospital on the airfield and I told the doc, I was like, yeah, I'm feeling kind of shitty, you know, and you mind checking me out or whatever. And he's like, yeah, sure. So he drew some blood on me. And then, you know, because it's a combat support hospital, it's like the, the lab tech ladies, kind of in the corner of the room over there and I'm standing here talking to the doc and I see the doc over there and he's talking with her and, You know, and the doc walks back over to me. He's like, uh, sorry, major, you mind if we draw blood out of your other arm? Now I'm not a doctor, but I was a special forces medic. So I was pretty sure that all your blood is connected. I was (laughs) was like, I mean, but but I was like, sure, I'll play. So I give my other arm to draw blood, goes back over there, draws blood, walks back over to me. It's like, Hey, we're sorry to tell you this. But you have leukemia. You're going home tonight. So I was like, What? I was like, I was just kicking in somebody's door six hours ago, and you're telling me I have leukemia? He's like, You know, your white count's 120. He goes, It should be between four and nine. And, you know, we're there, yeah, it seems a little bit high. So, and he and I are standing there talking, you know, so it's not like it's a bacterial infection or something like that. And he's like, You know, it is what it is. He goes, We don't know what type it is. We don't know if it's chronic or acute or whatever. He goes, but we're going to have to medevac you, you know, to Germany, Walter Reed, et cetera. And you're going to, you know, they're going to give you the full workup. So, so unceremoniously, um, that was the end of my action guy career. And it was like, you know, you go from hero to zero in about, you know, 2.5 seconds. And, um, it was, uh, it was, it was a real, um, uh, hit in the gut. And, you know, at the time I had, uh. A um, you know, my daughter was three, my son was five at the time. Uh we had our kids late in life. We've been married a long time, but um we had our kids late and so I was like, Oh man, what the hell, you know. So anyways, I got Medevac to uh I'll tell you another story about that later, another mission in you know, up in Mosul. But anyways, I got Medevac to um to launch duel and then saw an oncologist there and they go well we're going to send you to walter Reed. they're going to do bone marrow biopsies all this so they you know drilled holes in my bones and all this kind of fun stuff and so if you ever get a chance to get holes drilled in your bones don't yeah just to skip that (laughs) take the pass so um they said well the good news is is that um the type of leukemia you have we can keep it at bay if you take chemo every day for the rest of your life so, I thought, well, all things being equal, staying on this side of the grass is better than being on that side of the grass, so I'll take option A. Um, interestingly, during the uh, during the medevac process, I'd been calling my wife every day, you know, I'd either call her on the sat phone or we could Skype or whatever, this was towards the end of the war, so, you know, technology was a little more abundant then. Um, I did call her one time on the sat phone from Afghanistan, right when a firefight broke out. So if you ever have to try to break off a conversation with your wife and kind of make it seem cool, like nothing's going on, it was kind of like, hey honey, uh, some of the other guys need to use the phone. But anyways, on this one, I was like-
0: Tell your story after we're done.
1: Yeah, so anyway, she uh, when I was getting medevaced, I told her, I said, listen, I'm gonna, I'm going to be calling you, I'm going to be traveling. So I'm going to be calling you on this calling card. So if you see this number, you'll know it's me. And she's like, oh, okay. So, so I didn't, she was in Texas with my kids. There was the big snowstorm here. It was during Christmas or something like that. She was going to drive back. And I knew if I called her, she would do what good wives do. She would load up the kids in the minivan, drive all the way across the country, meet me at Walter Reed. So I told everybody in the medevac process, do not under any circumstances call my wife. I said, you know, this is an emergent, it's just, it is what it is. So, um, I get all the way back to Walter Reed and then somebody at Walter Reed decides to call my wife and say, Oh, your husband's been medevaced. He was like, like you at his bedside. Fortunately, while they were on the phone call with her, I called her and said, Hey, how's it going? You know, and she gave me the third degree and four hours later, she was at Walter Reed to pick me up. So, um, long story short. I spent a couple of years on the chemo and it really did nasty, nasty things with me. And that was during my retirement process. Special operations was great to me. I went back out to the CT school where I'd been an instructor, the NCOIC and then now I got to be the Sergeant major there and that's where the sniper school and our hostage rescue school was. And, um, I stayed there during this process and, um, right after retirement, I met a guy in Dallas um, and asked me what my story was, you know, I was like, Hey, what's your story? You know, and I was like, well, you know, I just retired as Green brave for 25 years, got leukemia and on chemo and da da da." And he's like, dude, he's like, I hate that. And I'm like, well, no shit. I hate that too. He's like, well, the good news is it doesn't have to be that way. He goes, I bet if we just thought about this differently, the answer is within arm's reach. He goes, what would be the evidence that you're healed? I go, well, I'd have to stop taking chemo and they say it'll come back in a couple of months and blah 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 and he's like dude just let me speak over you to be healed and i was like all right you know i'd grown up in church and all that kind of stuff and so i was a little bit skeptical just because i'd seen so much shenanigans you know in my life with all that and so i went to bow my head and closed my eyes and this guy's like no he goes look at me and when i looked at him i was like man this guy means business and so I, uh, he spoke over me and told my bones and my blood and everything to be right. And, and uh, I didn't, there was no, you know, spotlight or magic heart music or anything like that, but I just felt a real peace kind of come over me. And um, that was about seven years ago. And now when I go to get my blood drawn and all that, they'd say it's like I never had it. So one of the things I did, or maybe I should say one of the things I didn't do is when they told me I had leukemia is I didn't start looking up all the bad shit that could happen to me because I stayed away from that I stayed on the offense and I stayed positive and because I think you know there's a, a lot of research out with epigenetics and things like this now that the way you think actually changes your DNA and how your body heals itself how your body responds to things and so Again, we could do a whole nother two hours just talking about these things, but it was um I I really think that, you know, love is the highest force in this world and it supersedes everything else. And it it is really um transformative in not just personally like in a matter like this, but just in in communities and in anything, it, it truly is the, the building block of what we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to aspire to. So, you know, I would just encourage, you know, anybody that's listening or watching this just to, uh, you know, if you're in a bad spot like that, you need to stay positive about these things. And there's a, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of good information out there. There's different ways to go about this. Um, so I've seen tons and tons of people just beat the odds and have miraculous things happen to them. But it's usually all about, because they believe that, you know, that love does transcend these things, regardless of what religion or what brand you want to put on it or whatever else. It's just like, these are universal things. These aren't, you know, keystoned into, if you're one of these or one of those or whatever garden variety brand of, you know, religion that you want to be. I think that, uh, you know, love is love and it's, uh, it's transcendent. So yeah, that was, um, that was a real life changer for me. And are we, are we running out of time? I, no. I could seg- we can talk I could as se-
0: long as you want.
1: I could segue into another, uh, deal here. That event for me was very transformative because about, I don't know, a year and a half, two years later, a guy came to me and goes, Hey, um, the head Sunni Muslim cleric in Iraq wants to meet with some Christian leaders to talk about, you know, because this is when the heat of ISIS when all that was going on, and um, so that they don't think that all, you know, Sunni Muslims are bad or whatever. He goes, Well, you help me set the meeting up so like we don't get get the orange jumpsuit treatment. And um I was like, yeah, sure. You know, so felt like it was the right thing to do. So I fly over to Iraq and, um, at first I had met with some or talked with some of my contacts that I still had over there from my past life. And then went over there, set the meeting up, did all this. And then the guy invited us to, to go to mosque with him on, um, on Friday and which was really weird because my previous experiences in those environments were different. And, um, and then we met again and then we met, ended up having three or four meetings with the guys. And during the course of these meets, he, he says, you know, there's a, there's a bunch of Christian Yazidi families that got pushed out of Mosul when ISIS came in and they're in these areas, would you like to meet them? And so I went into this like old church area up in Northern Iraq and these families were there just living in like these little rooms. And I went in there and I just wept, it was, It was crazy to think about. I mean, I I was so overwhelmed with just like, what the hell? Like, this is just like, it was hell on earth. You know, it was just like, this is just unjust. I mean, I was just, I was overwhelmed with it. And, and so I got on the sat phone I called my wife. I was like, listen, I go, you know where I'm at, you know what I'm doing? This is what I see. I go this, I gotta do something for these people. I just can't leave them like this. And uh, she goes, well, you know, she goes, there's a reason why you're over there. She goes, do what you do. She goes, there's nobody more capable or, you know, better trained to probably, you know, help out. So I ended up staying an extra week. And then um, I flew back home. I raised about $350,000 just doing some private speaking engagements uh, just from great people who wanted to be part of actually doing something. Flew back over there a couple of different times. um, Met with some of my old interpreters, some of my old soft guys, and then, um, you know, it's different when you're doing rescue stuff without getting into a lot of details, but when it's just you and another guy and a bunch of in people, what we talked about earlier in the conversation about relationships being important, this was all relational. And we were able to get eight families out, you know, out from under that, get them processed pulled a bunch of strings was able to get them visas to go to a, a, a partnering country that nobody else could get into got them in there got them set up in apartments got them jobs and you know was able to do a hostage rescue if you will but by totally different means but it was all about applying the same principles, building good relationships just being a good person doing self-sacrificing things um, you know the golden rule doing for others what you'd want them to do for you one of my friends i had told you before is uh used to run iraqi intelligence he said to me he goes jack he goes so, uh, why do you do that for these people you don't even know them and you know i says well i just i would doing for them what i would want them to do for you know, my family, if I was in their shoes, you know, and it really touched him, you know, cause he's a Muslim and, you know, and he and I could care less about that kind of thing. We're, you know, we're friends and our families hang out together and whatnot. And, you know, I think at a, at a deeper visceral level without putting labels on it, it was, it said something because it was action. It actually did something. It didn't talk about it. It was being a doer. And so I think had I not had the experience with leukemia, I think I might've been still absorbed into what I was doing. Um, and maybe not had the compassion or the capacity to do that. Or maybe I wouldn't have got put in that spot, but I think, you know, whenever life throws you a curveball and these weird things happen, usually on the other side of it, there's a reason, you know, Um, you know, the Bible talks about what the devil means for bad, God can turn to good. Maybe that's part of it. Um, that might be a way to look at it. Uh, so anyways, I just, I think having good relationships, good fundamental skills, having the courage to use them, not letting fear rule you. I think what we see, what's going on in our society right now with fear, it's so, egregious and it's so intentional if you just stop back and look at what's going on what they're trying to do because when people are under fear you can make them do anything because you can't think clear and they're and it's happening nationally and it's happening collectively and i think that people will buy into fear and they'll let people it'll rob you of your security you know i think it was uh benjamin franklin that said of um People that give up their freedoms for per, per, perceived security deserve neither. You know, I, I think that's kind of it. And But this intentionally pumping fear into people I think is very intentional. I mean, it, I mean, hell, it goes to our pharmaceutical commercials that you see all the time. What is it? It's fear. If you've been feeling bad lately and you got this, you might have bang. You know, what is that? It's the power of suggestion to plant fear into you to make you think oh you know i have felt a little bad lately maybe i have i need to get a it's evil man that kind of stuff it's like i've heard that only in the us and australia are they allowed to do pharmaceutical commercials i don't know if that's true but i think it's something we need to get rid of because i think it's 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 a horrible horrible thing because we're a very sick society and i don't think we need to be pushing that but Again, another conversation for a different.
0: Well, you know, I I think those pharmaceutical commercials are funny because they say, are you uh, tall? Are you short? Are you fat? Are you skinny? (laughs) Do you feel bad? Do you feel good? Will you possibly have this? And then I love the side effects, possible death and stuff. I'm like, well.
1: Possible arm growing out of your head. Yeah,
0: I'm not doing that. If you don't mind, can I tack something on just to what you were saying about why you think you did the things that you did over there by getting those people
1: out? Sure.
0: Maybe it's philosophical or whatever, but do you think that goes back to all the way what we talked about in the very beginning where you felt like someone gave you up or gave up hope on you? You were adopted. Do you think that's traveled through all this time?
1: Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I've always been, uh, you know, rooted for the underdog and maybe right. it's because when you like the underdog, maybe it's just that, you know, it's just, um, I mean, we all love movies that are like that. It's like, Absolutely. Root, you root for the guy. It's just like, you know, you always, you, and so I think maybe that just does get ingrained into your DNA. Um, and I, I think maybe that's just how I was brought up too. Um, I remember my parents used to You know when i was little the vietnam refugees were coming over and my mom would go and get clothes and bring them to them and do that and they just tried to do their part to do something to help other people you know get ahead and get out but i think all of us have our own races to run um like i don't think everyone's mission is my mission and i don't think their mission is my mission You know, I don't think everyone is cut out to go overseas and do that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, I've said before that I I bet within one mile radius of wherever you're sitting right now, there's a kid being abused. There's a person considering suicide. There's a single mother who can't make ends meet. If we, if we all just focused on one, my Iraqi friend tells me, he goes, you know, Jackie says there's a a verse in the Quran that says saving one life is like saving all of humanity. And I always thought that that was kind of like, eh, whatever. But then I got to thinking about it. It's also in the, in the Jewish text, almost the exact same verse, which is ironic, but, um, it really, it really is true because if you're the one person being saved, it is all of humanity. It's your humanity. You know what I mean, and it's yeah. like and i think I think if we all just did one, I mean you can't, the you can't save everybody seemed, the problem seems so damn big out there, you're just like, oh my god, it's just like you know you get bombarded by the news and you're it just seems so big, focus on one, just do one, and if you can do one and your neighbor can do one you can, you know it, it it would have a a huge exponential effect if we could all just do one, so you know I would encourage people to. Um, you know, start where you're at, improve your base camp and then start to push your perimeter out, you know? And if that's one person at a time, it's one person at a time. So just do what you can do. And, you know, there's always somebody to, to to help out. There's always somebody else out there that's got it worse than you do. So,
0: yeah, I, I think that brings us right into the final thing that I want to talk to you about, and that's the redeployed, um, what we talk about a lot on this show is I have seen it a lot in law enforcement. I've seen it in military personnel that I talk to guys get to the end of their career. They get to the end of what they're doing and they just kind of lose hope. Uh, they don't have a purpose. They don't have something they should do. They never got a hobby while they were nothing. And they either get sick, they die. They, they can't figure out what to do with themselves. And I, I think that, Guys like you and other guys that I've had on here show that there's a whole nother world out there. Like there's a second half to the book right when you retire. And I think you've done it taking everything that you know from your past and using it for your future. How do you get that message out? And I ask a lot of the guys that come on here, how do you get that message out to people that just can't seem to wrap their head around that concept?
1: Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll be the first to say I suck at marketing. Um, you know, people that train with me are like, dude, you have the best product ever. It's like, it just, you know, I'm like, yeah, I, I hate the self promotion part. So even doing podcasts and things like this, are it's somewhat out of, out of my wheelhouse. Um, um, but I, I think when I'm teaching people, I try to, The word represent also means to represent, to represent maybe what it means to be a good guy and not, you know, our definition of what a good guy is in our society, I think sometimes isn't really what a good guy is.
0: I agree. You
1: know what I mean? I think sometimes our definition of being a good guy is being that B player in a video game that's just in the background, you know, that's doing something. Or you're just stuck in the matrix and you're just but you're not really in the game you're not a player you're not moving the ball one direction or the other and so i think representing what it means to be a good guy to be you know um to be i don't want to say the word to be a tough guy but it's like i think at some point as a man or as a woman or as anybody you have to have skills to be able to stop evil. Um, and like we talked about before, the more skills you have, the more peaceful you can be. I got to spend several hours with Hicks and Gracie. I don't know if you know who Hicks is. You've probably heard of the Gracie family. Mm-hmm. But Hixon is the oldest brother. Um, you know, 400 some fights, never lost. Uh, absolutely amazing. You can watch his movie, Choke. They're doing a. I think Netflix is doing a movie on him right now. Yeah.
0: But, I, I've had Nick Lavery on here I, and I think he talked about him.
1: I, I think, I think yeah, it was Hickson, there
0: was someone that, that talked about knowing that whole family.
1: Yeah. Hickson was like, it's like talking to Yoda, you know, I, I don't know how else to describe <laughs> it. It was just, you know, and for, for a guy like me who, who, you know, used to do a lot of BJJ training and mixed martial arts training and teaching combatives or DT or whatever you want to call it. It was, um, I I met him through a mutual friend of mine that I do police work through actually. And so, you know, Hickson said some very profound things to me, but one of the things he said that really stood out, he said that service to others gives your life purpose. And so if your life is service to you, it really, your life isn't going to have much purpose. It's really service to others. And then one of the other things he says, which kind of surprised me, he said, you know, I think everybody should learn jujitsu. And I was like, why in the world would everybody need to learn jiu-jitsu he goes well learning jiu-jitsu teaches you to problem solve under stress and that's a life skill and i was like you know what you're absolutely right it does it does teach you to problem solve under stress and um you know i remember with the guys on my team i used to take them to the dojo and we would just go fight because i found that fighting like empty hands and doing that even with his gloves whatever just contact was the only thing you could do to train somebody's mind to be a warrior. Because otherwise it's all theoretical. If Bye. you're not taking punishment while you're giving it, it's it's not fighting. And so I liked that and I think that at all levels, people need to have skills to be confident, to not let fear rule them, you know, whether it's the, Lady walking the dog at night or stepping out in the parking lot in the dark place or in the parking garage. You shouldn't be in fear. You should just know that, hey, this is where I got to be right now. I'm not being cavalier about my security or putting myself intentionally in a bad spot. But if I'm here and I need to be here, I'm not going to be afraid. And And if something bad comes my way, I feel sorry for that person.
0: You it's know what good I mean? It, yeah. That, that's, if
1: you, if you, it's a totally different mindset. That's exactly
0: what I was about to say. That's the exact yeah. opposite of what a lot of people would think. They would think something bad might happen to me. You're taking it in the opposite direction saying, I feel bad Absolutely. for the person that would bring it.
1: Yeah. You know, when I teach um, some defense courses, sometimes, you know, uh, I'll have a picture of like somebody in a house and you'll see somebody drawing a knife out and I'll show them this picture. And then there's somebody kind of cowering like this. And I go, what do you guys see when you see this picture? And most of the people don't see themselves as the person drawing the knife. They see themselves as the person covering up. And so after the training, I want them to see themselves as the person who goes, Oh, you came in my house. Guess how this is going to (laughs) end. Not well, (laughs) Not, not well, because you know, it, it, it's problem solving, you know, it's just like, But it, but it's, but it's a mindset to have that you have to be able to have these skills, uh, Jordan Peterson, he's a famous author and speaker. He talks a lot about this, that you truly can't be a virtuous person if you can't do violence, because ultimately, you know, if the old lady across the street's getting mugged and you have no skills and you go over there to try to help her. What's going to happen. You're going to get mugged too. You know, it's like at, at some point you have to be able to, you know, I think in
0: crime, that's called a two-for-one.
1: Two-for-one, yeah. Yeah. You can use that one, too.
0: I'll let you have that one, too, for your training courses. Yeah, no problem. Got it. Okay, so we got to talk about this ranch because this is awesome. Moss Creek Ranch, 4,000 acres, high fence near Big Springs, Texas. It's got canyons, wind conditions. It's got a 100-meter zone, one-mile shooting, moving targets. we got to talk about the sniper golf course lodging, mess, gym, everything is available on this ranch. So tell us how it is and tell how people can get in touch with you. Cause this thing is awesome.
1: Well, they can get in touch with me through my website at the redeployed there, the redeployed.com. They can uh, contact me through there. Uh, the ranch is in big spring, Texas. That's everything you just said. Um, I do a lot of military and law enforcement training out here. The sniping stuff we can do out here is absolutely incredible. I probably got a hundred plus pieces of steel movers. We can shoot out to 700. Um, You can shoot farther than you can shoot here. So uh, there's plenty of that. The sniper golf course is really, really cool. We've got 18 positions set up um, on top of these different canyons firing in different directions. So every shot you get a cold bore shot with a different wind direction with different size targets and at each position I've got a one MOA target, about a two MOA target, and then I've got an animal target. And then I've got a score sheet, just like you would for playing golf that you can kind of score with your buddies or play it as the best ball or do whatever, but it's a good time. Like after I do sniper training for guys, like I just had some um, snipers from law enforcement come out here from the East coast and you know, we did a week of training and then the kind of as our culminating event, we went and shot that course. And then I usually have a, a cool battle mug, um, which is like this neat aluminum mug with rails on it and everything that, you know, have top shooter on it. And then, you know, put their unit logo on it or whatever, and kind of give that to the top shooter, but just gives us something to shoot for. But it's super amazing. I've also had hunters come out and do it. I've had you know father son combos come out just to, you know, it's like shooting around a golf, but for men, it's much cooler. So um, it's a a really, really, uh, really neat facility. We also do a lot of driving training. Um, I do evasive driving training for different military units where I've got a bunch of cars out here, Crown Vicks and different ones where we pit and ram and do all that. For the military, I do a little bit different flavor than um what you guys are used to probably in law enforcement like when you guys do pitting you're learning how to pit people well we teach people how to counter pit if somebody's trying to pit you if you're overseas these are things you can do that make that a bad decision for them so um you know it's it's kind of a different mindset and then but there's a whole the weapons application piece of it is very very aggressive and um very practical i i My training is a little bit different than I do than what guys are traditionally exposed to. Like I said at the onset, everything I do is on the move. Um, It's hard to shoot moving targets, so I don't like to be a stationary one. And then, um, so anyway, it's just a whole bunch of that. But pistol, carbine, long guns, whatever guys wanna do, we do a a whole garden variety of that. So it's it's a great place to train, it's a great place to be. I also do a lot of MTTs, mobile training teams, where I travel to um, other agencies and use their facilities or ranges and um, do a lot of custom courses of guys go, Hey, we'd like two days of pistol and a day of carbine or a day of combatives and this or CQB combatives or some CQB stuff or whatever. So, you know, it kind of depends what the client wants as to what they get.
0: And that's open to pretty much anyone that wants to do it right. Because you have it broken down where you have civilian classes, military classes, law enforcement classes
1: yes i'm starting to do more civilian classes i've partnered with scalawag tactical um they make knives but i started doing more civilian classes through them um i did did one in florida not too long ago also did one out in los angeles where we do kind of a pistol knife concealed carry um type stuff and in fact they're making um designed a knife they're having it made right now so hopefully that'll be out soon and then um in conjunction with Scalawag, the owner of Scalawag, I have another friend who's a fifth degree BJJ black belt. Um, actually I actually have two friends that are but but um, we're doing a, uh, starting up an online training um, program called The Elite U. And that is going to be like an online subscription and I've had professionally done videos where we really get into the weeds and really detail a lot of what we do and how we do it so that if somebody can't afford to, you know, come into a week long course, you know, with travel and lodging and everything else, I get that. I still want them to have good information they can use to, um, you know, have this mindset. Uh, Again, much of what we do is about training the mind, not just training physical skills. I try to get away from my technique is better than your technique and, you know, kind of the tactical world gets very, you know chest beaty about oh you got to hold your gun like this and do you know i'm like whatever you know i've i've been in a bunch of gunfights fights and I, you know it's just like dude get over yourself it's like there's some fundamental things you need to be able to do but more importantly you got to be able to put it together up here and and apply be flexible and adaptable and be able to apply your skills and creative ways to get good solutions so
0: and when's the release of that
1: we're gonna do a soft release on that on Black Friday. And then we're gonna to continue to upload. There'll be hundreds of videos on that where guys can watch or guys and gals can watch. And then we're gonna have, we're also bringing in other subject matter experts in their own fields who are elite people just to talk about their mindset and how they got where they're at. And that's from people from the medical field, people from the military, from all disciplines of life, because, you know, the common thread between elite people is usually they work hard. They're doing something that they love doing, that they're passionate about that allows them to do the training, to put all the time and effort. It's something that they're consumed with and they surround themselves with other elite people who are positive like that. And so I think just. Kind of sharing that information is great because I think when you become that person doing something you love, other people who are also doing something they love, they'll be attracted to you, even though it's a different discipline, just because you both have love for what you do. And then you end up surrounding yourself with a great group of people and it makes for a great life and you end up with great friends. So I think that's a, that's a good way to go about life.
0: I think so. So what's next for you?
1: Well, what's next for me is I've got uh, some government courses I'm doing, get those knocked out and then um, Thanksgiving, hopefully spend some time with the family and and enjoy that and then launch this uh, online deal and then just keep uploading on that. I've really, I put a lot of time and effort into that just to really make that a high end, cool product that would be available to the masses, if you will and then um kind of make it interactive and make it fun and you know drive more training and just spread the good news
0: will we ever see a book
1: yes yes um people have been hounding me about the book i've been writing on it for quite a while um and it seems like the longer i wait the crazier the world gets and at first i was going to keep the book kind of nice and you know kind of in the middle but the longer it goes on i think it's going to be just a hard kick in the balls um, as, as that doesn't as, sound
0: like you at all.
1: Yeah. As we go along, it's just, <laughs> you know, I think if anybody on the planet should be able to give it to you straight, um, as you know, you've interviewed several green berets, majors. Um, it should be those people who aren't going to sugarcoat it and just tell you like it is. So, um, I don't have all the answers, but, um, I think I've seen enough in the world that I think we could probably start thinking a little bit differently about things might help out.
0: I I agree. I I think that uh, that's the way we need to maybe start looking at stuff is just the cold, hard facts. No emotion to it. This is the evidence that's out there. It's what we've been dealt. Let's move on with this card game.
1: That's it. That's about it.
0: Guys, uh, you need to check him out. Uh, Jack, it was so amazing to have you on the show. Your stories were absolutely fantastic. I love what you're doing out there. Uh, especially at the ranch. Um, if you want to check him out, you want to get some of these classes, you want to go out there, go to the redeployed.com. Once again, that's the redeployed.com. That has everything how to get in contact, how you can shop, the different training that they have there. There's videos of what actually goes on at the ranch. And so if you want to get a hold of him, that's the way to do it. Once again, that's the redeploycom If you want more of me or the DTD podcast, you can go to Instagram at the DTD underscore podcast. You can go to Facebook at the DTD podcast and you can go to YouTube where all these conversations are in video form at the DTD podcast. Remember guys, the best stories are true. That's why you come here every week because I give them to you. That's Jack. I'm DJ. This has been the show. We'll catch you guys on the next one. See you later.